Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. This week's show is sponsored by our best-selling Sleep Support Plus supplement. Our science-backed formula helps you fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and wake up feeling rejuvenated. Look, I never knew how good sleep could be until I started taking our product. Now it is a non-negotiable for Colleen and I as we take it every single night. So now's the time to upgrade your sleep. Just go to mybuddygreen.com sleep25 and use the code sleep25 for 25% off your first month's subscription. Sweet dreams and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, today we have Dr. Sasha Hines, who is an expert in behavioral change and positive psychology, who has a Bachelor of Arts from Harvard, a PhD in development psychology from Columbia, and a master's in positive psychology from UPenn. She definitely has academia covered and and a lot more than that. Uh, Sasha, welcome. Thanks, Jason. So good to be here. On your website, I appreciate your humor about all of your degrees uh which <laughs> we could have an entire podcast episode deconstructing my drive to get those <laughs> three ivy league degrees and so w- with that said w- what i found immediately interesting about you is how you described how your practice you were it, is cl- it was clear to me you were not a traditional psychologist so to start there for our audience who's not familiar with you Can you talk a little bit about what's different about you and your approach than other psychologists we all may encounter on the, in the real world or on zoom somewhere? Uh, that, well, interesting. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I've been, I do positive psychology, what we call, you know, and then, and then I went back into what we call business as usual psychology. So I had the benefit of being on both sides, um, why there is this, why there are sides, I don't know. But uh, nonetheless, I, I was one of the f- earliest people to be in the field of um, positive psychology as a graduate student. So, you know, back then it sort of felt like a fringe you know, field of study in psychology and now not as much, which is a good thing. But um, I think the thing that really differentiated me from my colleagues was I was always interested in, um, health, well-being, optimal human functioning. I was really interested in, in, in human potential. I was less interested in disease disorder and pathology. I mean, it's all over my family, so (laughs) perhaps I should have been more interested in it, but maybe, maybe that's why I wasn't. I just was always so interested in the questions of what makes life worth living. Um, you know, what's possible for us. I think that we just, we have such a narrow view of what we can accomplish, what we can achieve, um, what's, what we're capable of. And it's so exciting to see, um, and to, to study extraordinary people, um, extremely, uh, people that self-report as being, you know, very satisfied with their life. Why? I mean, I think that to me is extremely interesting. Well, let's go right there. You answered, you, you, you posed all the big questions. So let's start with the, the first one. What makes life worth living? You know, I, I think, look, there's a mental health epidemic. So many people are just flat out unhappy, unwell. What makes life worth living? What have you found in your research? 
Fundamentally, I would say, you know, two things. One is relationships, the quality of the relationships that you have. And I think, you know, very related to that is meaning and purpose. I think that we derive so much meaning and purpose from the relationships that we have. Um, you know, so it's, they're sort of hard to parse, parse out, but it's not about, and I, I, I take umbrage with people, you know, have this idea of positive psychology is happyology. Not at all. I think that what we've really found in actually spending time to study well-being is understanding what are the components of a life well-lived. And fundamentally, it is about having a life that feels meaningful to somebody, to, to feel that your life um, matters to you and it matters to other humans. And so I have a lot of questions now. So how does one, so you've got relationships, meaning, and purpose. If I'm listening, I'm saying, okay, I got it. Now, what do I do next? How do I start to evaluate the relationships if they're quality relationships that are meaningful and have, you know, dovetailing to to meaning and purpose? Does my life have meaning? Do I have purpose? Uh, How does one go about that process right now? I know it's a big, I know it's hard to generalize. It's a big question, but. Well, I mean, I think that this is one of the reasons why, and I, and I will say this, like, I don't, I'm never call myself a positive psychologist because I didn't, I didn't get my doctorate in that field. I'm an adult developmental psychologist, but, um, or, or developmental psychologist. And I focus on adult, I focus on adulthood than childhood, but I think that this is what, what has been so wonderful about, um, about, you know, the field of positive psych, which is really being able to deconstruct what is a good, what is the good life and how can we actually examine this with a little bit more rigor? Um, and, and I think, you know, understanding that it's, you know, positive emotion is a component of it, but it's almost invariably, it's a byproduct, um, more than something you, you know, it's like, we feel, we feel good as a byproduct of doing good. Um, you know, and I think if, if anything, positive psychology has really shown us that sort of well-doing, it's not necessarily well-being it's, it's, you know, how are you taking action, um, specific actions to that we can actually, you know, it boost or, or, um, increase your, your well-being. It's possible to do these things with some very simple exercises, but what does it include? Engagement, feeling deeply engaged in this flow state. That's a big one. Um, and relationships, meaning, and then achievement is the, you know, the final component. So positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement, sort of the um, theory of well-being. So, but isn't that good to know that it's such a, it's expansive and it doesn't mean that you had to have won the genetic optimist lottery. You know, some people have a temperament that's more sunny, but that doesn't necessarily matter which I think it should be good news to everybody. Yeah, I love that you said, I, I haven't heard this. This is a new one. I love it though. Well-doing instead of well-being. It reminded me, we had Arthur Brooks on the show uh, a couple of months ago. And for me, one of the big take-home messages in terms of, of purpose and, and having a fulfilling life is, is action, is giving back, is not necessarily seeking public or professional accolades. It was, you know, doing meaningful work, having meaningful relationships, 
uh, essentially doing things. He starts the book by telling a powerful story of a, he wouldn't name the individual, but a very uh, distinguished, successful man in his 80s. He's sitting behind him on a, on a flight. He doesn't know who it is. And, and he hears the guy talking to his wife saying, you know, my, I'm miserable. You know, no one, no one needs me anymore. Why am I still alive? And, 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 the, and Arthur's like, this guy's terrible. Like what's he's in terrible shape. And then the plane, he gets off the plane and he sees who it is. And he's like, Oh my God, this is like one of the most well-respected accomplished. <laughs> and, and so I'll, I'll pause there. I think I made the point, but I love this, I, this idea of, of doing, you know, in that case, the man stopped doing and becomes miserable. And with all that said, do you think in this field, in our space, whether it's, you know, self-help, personal development, positive psychology, we're kind of overcomplicating it. Just like start doing something, start to get back, start to feel grateful. What do you think? I agree. I think that we could simplify it in, in, um, in the sense that everything with children is okay. Raising children is non simple. I'm not saying that I have two children. It's the hardest thing I've ever done bar, <laughs> bar none. However, there's some basic truths that we sort of all accept in the world of child development. For example, um, there are basic milestones that kids should meet over the course of their education. Um, there are basic skills that we expect kids to, to accomplish. Like, you know, um, they were able to separate from their parents. We all agree that kids should be able to do this, right. That, that they are, they, you know, they are able to go to school and not feel as anxious about being away from their primary caregiver. And they learn to interact with the world. And then they, they learn basic social, emotional skills at school and they're learning all these things. Okay. And we have a framework for this that we've all loosely agreed upon. Now there are a lot of arguments about pedagogy, but nonetheless, we've agreed that having some kind of structure around a child's development makes sense. And then we emerge into adulthood and there's nothing, <laughs> nothing. And we pretend like this, this growth and development stops but what you were listening, what Arthur Brooks was listening to on that airplane was someone in a developmental crisis that they hadn't mastered the developmental tasks of his stage of life. By the way, those accomplishments in a, when you're in that process of building your career, right on target, right? Mastery, competence, growth, you know, you're building your career. You want to get better. Okay. But then as we get older, our role in society, our role as someone who's, you know, gone through all of these things changes and the developmental perspective that we have should also change. It becomes less about us. It becomes more about, um, giving back. It becomes more about, um, you know, what does George Valiant call it? Generativity, the stage of generativity, where our job is really giving to, the generation below us or two generations below us. And then beyond that, being a keeper of meaning, um, you know, being someone who uh, plays the role maybe in one's family, maybe in one's community of reminding people of what matters and 
being the historian, um, you know, being the person that, so, you know, when things are going, the world is going haywire and I call my dad, who's almost in his eighties, you know, his perspective is longer and bigger and wider. And he's like, well, yeah, this is a tough time. I've seen many tough times now and I'm still here. So, you know, having that perspective um, a 25-year-old, no matter how wise they are, can't have that. So, and, and, you know, wisdom doesn't necessarily correlate with age. So are we engaging in our own growth and development beyond those schooling years? And for most people, the answer is no. And if they are, it's very catch-as-catch-can. It's with a stack of self-help books on their bedside table with little implementation, with little support, with little community. And so... It seems like there is no standard, if you will, also in the way we, we have standards for, for children, but it also seems we probably shouldn't have a standard. And there, there are various schools of thought. There are various life stages. You know, I always, I, I, I fall guilty to sometimes equating age with wisdom, but to your point, not, all, not always the case. So with all that said, if you could like tear down the house, <laughs> And start from scratch. We, we, you know, I think of like the myths. You know, we touched on positive psychology. We talked about self help. We talked about happiness. What are the biggest myths in those three buckets? Positive psychology, self help, and happiness. Like, what, what, what? In your opinion, you just think we're we're really getting wrong? Goodness, that is a good. That's a good question. A big one. Um, one. What are we getting wrong? I think we get wrong on both ends of the spectrum. Where the sort of um, that it's all about feeling good and we should be focusing on feeling good. And then this other side of the spectrum that's saying, you know, that's upset about this idea of toxic positivity, which is not positivity. It's just denial. Yeah. What is that? What, can you walk me through like the fine line of when positivity becomes toxic? When is that? When is it crossover? I mean, it's such a subjective, um, you know, it's subject. It's really a subjective. Like how do you, how do you decide when that, where that line is? But the distinction to me would be, you know, are you committing to reality or not? My colleague, um, Scott Barry Kaufman, who was, te- you know, taught at Penn for a while and, and, um, but anyhow, has the psychology podcast. He, um, he so beautifully was saying, and I, I, I think it was, um, it was either Victor, I think it was Victor Frankel who said it, but anyway, like he called it tragic optimism. And I was like, right, this is what positive psychology is actually about. It is the acknowledgement that life is so hard and life includes suffering period. And this, the idea that, you know, our task is to hunt the good stuff in the midst of life being hard. And I think people get this very wrong, even psychologists. I mean, the, 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 um, the disdain. Is that the right? I think that that is actually the right word. It sounds a little dramatic, but it really was. The field of positive psychology was met with disdain in the larger field of psychology when it first emerged. Like this is fluffy. This is frivolous. This is, you know, not serious. Um, and, and I, my, I beg to differ, you know, um, I think if we take as a basic premise that life is extremely challenging for every single one of us, Nobody, you know, gets out unscathed. Isn't living life with the lens of I'm going to 
look for what's right. I'm going to hunt the good stuff. Like, isn't that something that we should all aspire to? I think so. Certainly. Um, you know, but I, I, anyhow, so, I mean, I think that's incredibly important is understanding number one, that the study in the field of positive psychology, or, you know, I think people have with some, with sort of, you know, they mock some of this self-development work is like, oh, it's cheesy or it's, um, it's all good vibes only. It's like, that is so untrue. The reason that people engage in this work is not because life is easy. It's because in somewhere in their life, they've struggled and they want, but maybe what it, it signifies is that they want more or they're hoping for more. Or they're hoping that life could get better than it currently is. And to suggest that that's not possible to me is the most depressing, <laughs> heartbreaking truth. Like it isn't a truth, but it's just the most, it, it, I can't even, can you imagine going to a child and who wants to, I don't know, do whatever they want to do. I mean, like just really doesn't seem that realistic. Right. I mean, that's what I mean. Like if we could just simplify things, how do you encourage a child? You you're like, I mean, they're on that bike and they're terrible. And we're like, you're doing great. Yeah. And we're freaking out. We're so excited for them. And, and they're falling and they're not doing all that well. And objectively they are awful bikers or they're, you know, they're objectively terrible at what they do, you know, but we are encouraging them and, you know, helping them see what's possible and helping them, um, feel good about that little step that they just took, the little accomplishment they just had. What if we lived our adults like life like that too? For me personally, I am an optimist. I believe in the power of optimism. I think there are a number of studies that point to the power of optimism in terms of longevity. But I have also read that there, and you've talked about this, pessimism actually has some upside as well. Can, can we talk a little bit about the upside of pessimism. When is pessimism valuable? Pessimism, and sorry, I didn't, did I not answer your question about toxic positivity and denial? Anyway, the line basically is like, if you're not in the arena of reality, then we're just in denial. But if we're like acknowledging the reality of things and we're hunting the good stuff, we're, and seeing what's possible and believing in what's possible and acknowledging the rea reality, then we're, we're all, we're mentally healthy. And it's okay. Pessimism and optimism. I mean, they both play a role. They're both important. Um, order of operations matters. So I would recommend that you try optimism before you launch into your pessimism. So at least you get going, or at least you can see a bigger picture. But in goals, in the goal setting literature, um, you know, dream big and then brush that dream up against reality against the hard, cold reality, which is, you know, maybe your skill set, maybe the current climate, maybe, you know, resources or whatever it is. And then, um, and, but you're looking at those obstacles as, um, something to overcome. Then you need to, you know, using a sort of strategic mindset of like, okay, well, these are the obstacles. How am I going to overcome these things it may take longer than you want, but, that's the job, but we want to first think big and then actually um, being pessimistic, so to speak, 
and thinking like, okay, how is this not going to work? How is this going to go wrong? And planning for those things makes you far more likely to actually accomplish the the goal. Because if we stay in fantasy and, um, you know, just dream the big dream, but don't actually take uncomfortable action, which any accomplishment requires a lot of uncomfortable action. That's how it, that's just the law of nature. That's how it works. Um, you know, if we're just staying in that dream space, we won't actually activate ourselves to do anything. Um, because dreaming feels good. It actually reduces our blood pressure. It makes us relaxed. So we fantasize about this incredible future and then we don't take action toward that future. So if we really want to make that dream into a reality, your pessimism is on your side. You know, that, that little, um, friction that, that anxiety of like, oh gosh, this is going to be hard or, oh gosh, this is going to require some effort on my part. That little bit of tension or inner friction actually is important because it activates us to take action and mo- mo- makes us do something. You know, I think Tim Ferriss said this, he's found it to be helpful. And I, I thought it was a good tip is sometimes think of the worst possible thing that could happen with whatever thing you're stressed about or whatever goal you have. Like if this, if A, B, and C go wrong, this is, and you walk through it and you wrap your head around it. And oftentimes you say, Hey, that's actually, okay. I could, I could figure that out. Or that's maybe not so bad. Um, but, but with that said, you mentioned mindset and you've also talked about mindset hacks and they don't work. You know, we all love hacks. I mentioned Tim Ferriss, you know, four hour work week, four hour body, four hour, you know, we all have, I love hacks. If you tell me I can do something in 15 minutes versus an hour, I'm in. But with regards to mindset, I think so much when I think of happiness, I think of health, I, I think of just life, mindset is, is everything. But you say mindset hacks don't work. Why don't mindset, mindset hacks work in your opinion? I mean, it depends on what they are, but this notion that, um, you know, we're going to find the quickest, a hack to me is something that reduces effort, right? We, it makes things easier somehow. Um, it's going to take the hard part out. And I, I think that that's often not the case with, um, you know, I think people give up quickly because something feels challenging or hard. So, I mean, perhaps like a semantic difference of, you know, don't, don't think about it as a mindset hack. Think about it as perhaps like a new approach or, because by the way, what Tim is doing, and funnily enough, I went to boarding school with Tim Ferriss. So it's so funny because I, I was, I remember reading his book and one of my friends from high school was like, you remember Tim, right? I mean, we went to school with him. I was like, oh my gosh, that's the same Tim Ferriss? I'm guessing he was quite different. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, a brilliant guy. I know a wrestler, a wrestler in high school and a brilliant guy. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that we have this idea that there's some magical elixir that someone's got it figured out and someone's doing it better than we are. And it's like every single one of us has a human brain. So the struggles that you're having, I can guarantee that most people are having the same struggles that you're having because they also have a human brain. Um, so to me, it's really more about, uh, changing your daily habits of how you interact with your brain as a, or your mind rather than, um, it is like, here's a hack, here's a, here's a trick, you know, because I think when we get into this sort of, here's the way to make it easy. Um, and it doesn't work for someone, then 
they kind of throw in the towel and they're like, see, didn't work. Um, but what Tim is suggesting that you do, which is entertaining the idea that something could go wrong, sitting with it and recognizing, okay, it's possible that I, you know, the, the future me who might encounter this problem, like I think that future me could probably handle it. They don't have the skills. I don't have the skills that my future self will have. So yeah, they, everything that, you know, I handled all the things in the past, I'll probably be able to handle it in the future. So you're essentially distancing yourself. It's just a, a way of, and it, and most mindset work is helping people develop the skill of self-distancing, of being able to distance, um, you know, your essential self, the observer from the thinker. And the better you get at that of distancing you as the observer versus you as the thinker, the more deliberate and conscious your life can be. And that, in my opinion, is 100% a skill that you need to learn and develop. And so how, how, do you, how do you get there, in your opinion? Meditation, mindfulness? Practice. For some people, the me- it works with meditation where they're able to sort of see their thoughts um, or, you know, let their thoughts sort of float by for other people. I teach a method where you're writing them down and looking at what, you know, objectively this thought creates this emotion. And when I'm feeling this emotion, what do I do? So you can kind of see the consequences of your thinking. Um, and, and just being able to write it down, taking it out of your head, putting it on paper can allow you to have that distance and just, and, and, you know, in the ACT literature, acceptance and commitment therapy, that's idea of, you know, our task is to diffuse from our thinking. So we get into trouble when we're so fused with our thinking that we, you know, we can't um, see around it. We're seeing through it um, and believing that that's true as opposed to it's our opinion in the moment. On the subject of getting into trouble, you used a term on your Instagram, which I found to be funny and thought-provoking, emotional Novocaine. <laughs> Still laughing about it's that. probably one. what I work on most with my clients. So how, how, do you, how do you define emotional Novocaine and how, how, what are some of the signs? Um, emotional Novocaine is just a phrase I just made up to mean anything that you do to numb. So anything that you do somewhat compulsively to avoid feeling feelings, whether that's boredom, whether that's, um, you know, some kind of dread of doing something, um, shame, embarrassment, sadness, loneliness, um, disappointment, whatever it is, it is engaging in some kind of behavior to numb or avoid those feelings. So it, it can have, it, it can have a lot of different, um, flavors of emotional novocaine. Everyone has their own version of it. Or multiple versions of it. So it could be alcohol, could be drugs, could be sex, could be spending too much time on Instagram. Totally. It could be scrolling Instagram. It could be gossiping with friends. It could be, you know, engaging in other people's problems could be someone's emotional novocaine. Um, Instead of dealing with what's going on in their life, they love digging in with someone else. Um, It could be any of those things, anything that you're doing to some extent compulsively, it could be shopping, it could be eating emotionally. Um, right. It's, it's like that you're not doing it for the pure enjoyment of the actual activity itself, but for its distracting powers. 
And we've all done it. I'm like, I found myself. Every single one of us, everyone. And by the way, sometimes you just need to, right? I mean, it's life is challenging. And there are times when you're like, man, I just need a break from all this. And so that's not a bad thing, but it, it can become, um, you know, it, it can become a problem when we're engaging in it in a way where it becomes compulsive or we really don't have any, we've lost our autonomy to it. So I'm going to come back to where we started mental health. You know, obviously there's a crisis. A lot of people are, aren't doing well. Uh, they're not happy. Uh, we've got an opioid crisis. Uh, people can't focus. You know, there's ADHD. I just think that there's just so much <laughs> going on. Um, and you talked about action. And something I know you're passionate about, which I, I want to spend time on in our closing, is, you know, mental fitness. I remember... We had, we used to do this amazing event called Revitalize. Uh, we did it every year up until 2020. I wonder what happened then. Uh, the first one we did in 2014, Dan Harris was the opening speaker. And he said, I predict in the future, people are going to be talking about mental exercise in the same way they talk about physical exercise. 2014, that came true. And then something you're passionate about is mental fitness. And so assume that our, you know, we've got a healthy, smart, group of listeners assume they're doing all the kind of the, the right things and taking care of themselves or doing all the good stuff in closing you know, how should we all be thinking about mental fitness and to me it, it one of the core messages is even if you're well you still need to take care of yourself it's like even if you're physically fit you still go to the gym you don't wait until you get out of shape so like Let's spend some time on mental fitness and what you're focused on and what should we all be thinking of regardless of how we feel. There are three things I think if you want to increase your capacity um, for mental fitness, and, and what I mean by that is really being more resilient, being more agile, being um, more flexible, um, being able to, to, to handle more, um, more robust, more sturdy in your, um, in your mental health. Uh, I would say there are three things that you really need to practice. One is challenging your thinking, genuinely observing the stories that you tell, the stories you tell others, the stories you tell yourself about who you are and what you're capable of and your identity and all of these things that absolutely shape our reality and questioning them, number one, and having a practice of observing and questioning them. Secondly, Increasing our tolerance for challenging emotional states. So, you know, can you increase your tolerance of um, discomfort in some way? Whether that's frustration, whether that's disappointment, whether that's um, whatever that is, vulnerability. Can you increase your tolerance of those and try to avoid them less as you'd be engaging in less emotional Novocaine if you could handle them better, right? So that's the second one. And then thirdly, um, taking action and closing that intention action gap and building that muscle of, um, you know, keeping one's promise to oneself that, you know, building that relationship with yourself that you trust yourself um, and, and that, and you, really taking action on the things that you intend to do, right? So you're closing that gap. And if you can work on those three things, your life will be so much richer, 
So the, you will be able to experience more. Um, you'll be able to handle more. You'll be able to take more uh, calculated risks in your life um, in a positive way. Like, I don't know, let's see what what's capable, what I'm capable of, you know, um, and be able to look back on your life and think, man, I've really changed. I've really grown. I really do see that I, I am, you know, the, the 10 year, the, the version of me now the you know, 10 year younger version of me, she couldn't have imagined, you know, what I can handle or what I know or what I could do. Right. There's a true growth arc and we want to always have our future self looking back on us and saying like, yeah, you know, I've, I've really grown. I've really developed. I can really handle more. Um, and to me, that is our great task in life is to continue to grow in that way in the same way that kids do in childhood. They look back and they think, man, second grade me couldn't have done this. Fourth grade me can do this. Second grade me could never have done this. And that we have the same relationship with ourselves in adulthood where we're looking back and we're like, mm, yeah, 35 year old me would not have been able to handle this, you know, and so on and so forth um, into our forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, beyond until cradle to grave. And what do we get so wrong? What, what do we as adults just completely screw up in this process? We forget that we're supposed to be growing. That's part of it. Um, we, we act as if it's sort of this, like it's a, it's a choice that for people who are just into that. I'm just in people, there are, those people are into self-development. It's like, <laughs> hold on a second here, right? I think this is the one fundamental thing we get wrong is we all fundamentally agree that children develop so do adults. Um, but we pretend it's like, you know, this person is into it and this person is. And I'm like, no, no, we're all in this process of growth and development. Some people are stalling. Um, and that causes a lot of psychological distress. If you're not growing, normative is growing. If you're not growing, it's no wonder that you don't feel great. It's no wonder that um, things you may feel that like, I feel stuck. I feel unhappy. I feel depressed. I feel anxious. I, you know, all of these things that we're feeling, that's normal. Well said, Sasha. Thank you so much. That's been such a pleasure. Thanks so much.